Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Okay, 2020, listen, uh, I, I hate to do this, but you know, when we, when we first met, I knew you'd be interesting. I knew you'd be exciting. Uh, I, I knew you were going to be you know, really, really fun. I, I didn't know that you were going to be batshit crazy. And so I think I need to see other years. So I'm sorry, 2020, but I, I packed your stuff. I, no, 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 2020, you have to leave. No, I'm sorry, but I, I need you to go. No, that, you want to do it this way? You want to do it because I didn't know you'd be totally batshit and I want to see other years. Okay. I want and I have another year arriving at midnight tonight. His name is 2021 and I don't want you guys to know. Oh, okay. Because you are the worst year I have ever known 2020 and I have known many. Now I got you an Uber, pack your shit. Here's your hat. Get out and take Trump with you. Welcome back to Sanity Cast. Welcome back to the Sanity Cast, the handy little podcast to help you keep your cool when uh, the Christians have elected Caligula. Also to keep your cool during the comb over Caligula coup conniptions and of course the ensuing chaos, horror and depolarity that will follow. I'm John saying It's very nice to be with you. We've been on hiatus for a bit. I'm really glad to be back. Uh, how have you been? Have a nice election time? Was 2020 everything you hoped for? Uh, enjoying the beginning of January so far? It's been nonstop madness. I'm so glad we're all still here. And at the time of this recording, we are in the midst of a very historic period where it looks like, as of this taping, that John Ossoff will join Reverend Raphael Warnock as being the uh, two Democratic senators from the state of Georgia, thereby handing the Democratic Party control of the Senate and making sure the most powerful person in America is no longer Mitch McConnell, but now Joe Manchin. Yes, that was our option. And now Joe Manchin, the most right-wing Democratic senator, oh, the power he wields. But it's okay. I want you to remember something. Life gets hard. It's not supposed to be fair. It's not supposed to be easy. But no matter what burden you're carrying early in 2021, please, I, I need you to remember one thing. You're having a better day than Donald Trump. Don't forget to tell yourself that. And as you go through the beginnings of 2021, be sure to take time and smell the desolation. Stop and really inhale that gorgeous aroma of chaos and fascism failure in your country. Take a moment to savor how ugly Donald Trump's departure is going to be. It's fitting for the man who is the mullet of presidents. You know, we talk a lot about the historic significance of George Washington 
giving up the office voluntarily as our first president after two terms. Oh, they teach us that in the history books, don't they? Uh, other, other nations are taught this. He could have been king, but he declined the throne. He said, we have to be a republic and have an orderly transfer of power. We never talk, though, about John Adams. Because people of Earth, I submit to you that John Adams, our second president, as of now, is officially even more historically important. Because it wasn't that John Adams gave up his power after two terms. John Adams modeled for the world an American president giving up his power after losing his reelection battle and only serving one. Adams just turned the office over to Thomas Jefferson. You saw the miniseries. Paul Giamatti just went down and hopped in a horse and buggy and drove away. Well, Trump is trying to destroy this fundamental part of American governance by literally, literally doing what he was impeached for, and that is abuse of power, using the power of the presidency to deny the results of an election he lost. And I've really had it with uh, Republicans who were silent about this. I've had it with Democrats who were silent about this. I've had it with celebrities. I've had it with athletes. And I've really had it with right-wing Christian faith leaders who are quiet about this. You're having a better day than Trump. You don't owe Deutsche Bank $400 million, do you? I mean, in the last 24 hours, uh, Trump was rejected by his own vice president. He was rejected by his own personal lawyer, Jay Sekulow. Yeah, <laughs> that one. Uh, he was rejected by Scotland, which announced that he will not be allowed to fly a 757 to his uh, golf course on the 19th of January. Scotland's first minister, Nola Sturgeon, said uh, they're on lockdown. And if he wants to come and play golf at his club, she said, coming to play golf is not what I would consider to be an essential purpose. Guys, 60 court cases, challenging the results have been rejected. The Kraken is dead. Uh, all the recounts went for Biden. I, I supported another nationwide recount because I'd like to watch Trump lose the popular vote a third time. He is the only impeached president to serve one term and lose the popular vote twice. More votes were cast against Donald Trump in 2020 than have ever been cast against any person in the history of America. His Supreme Court has ruled against him. A number of Republicans have admitted the election was highly secure. He committed outright fraud on the phone, saying, find me 12,000 votes. Boy, the, you, you ever know someone who just can't kick the irritating habit of bribing and coercing elected officials to manipulate the truth so he can win an election on the phone with witnesses. I, you don't come here to hunt. Uh, U.S. District Judge uh, Mark Cohen of the Northern District of Georgia just rejected his latest request to try to fuck with the count. And uh, Pence will, as of this recording, have verified Biden as the 46th president. 3,000 Americans are dying a day from Trump's virus. Hospitals are turning away sick people. He, he, he pardoned Manafort, pardoned Stone, pardoned Charles Kushner, pardoned criminals who slaughtered women and children. And those pardons exist because every Republican senator who voted to acquit Trump in his impeachment made those pardons possible. So if any Republican senators ever disapprove of any of his pardons, including Romney, remind them they built this. And now we see exactly at the moment we're recording this, Trump thugs storming the US Capitol, footage we never thought we'd see. Uh, I, I mean, it's amazing to watch uh, Blue Lives Matter morph into fuck the police. 
but here they're doing it. And it's like the, it's like the pawns on a chess board came to life and rebelled, but no one ever taught them how to play chess. And that's why they're pawns. And that's Trump supporters. He will tell you to do things that will get you dead or get you poor or get you in jail. And poor Mike Pence, poor Mike Pence, thoughts and prayers. You know, Donald Trump pressured him so hard to overturn the electors, but you know, Mike Pence doesn't have the power to overturn electors. He doesn't. That's just who he is. He identifies as a person who can't turn over electors. And Donald Trump wanted Mike Pence to live a lie and pretend to be something he's not. It's unfair, isn't it, Mike? Don't worry. It gets better. So look, there, there, there's so much to discuss, and it's great to be with all of you. Uh, uh, thank you very much. We're going to be having much more regular podcasts, I promise, in 2021, because Trump might go away. The fuckery will not. And Trump's going to be very busy uh, freezing Republican politicians who want to run for president in 2024. We're going to be walking the awkward tightrope of defending Biden-Harris and holding Biden-Harris's feet to the fire, which is a better tightrope to be on than, oh my God, uh, our country is being eaten by a garbage monster. You know, remember, Donald Trump cut the unemployment benefits from $600 to $300 last summer. And now these folks actually believe he wants $2,000. As, as unemployment benefits. And I mean, the deal was done. Mnuchin had negotiated it, but Trump doesn't care about these guys any more than he cares about any Americans. And that's going to be the irony of being a liberal in Joe Biden's America. We're sort of like the X-Men. Uh, they'll think we're mutants, but we're just more evolved. And we have to fight for the people who are afraid of us. So there's so much to get to. And I, I want to also make a couple of announcements. First, uh, for our first one back, I am thrilled to uh, welcome some filmmakers today behind what I think is the best movie of 2020. It's a documentary, and it's a film that I hope you will see after you hear the conversations. It's called The Prison Within. And it's about um, the devastating impact that untreated trauma has on human beings and communities through amazing stories of survivors of violent crimes and amazing stories of prisoners who are incarcerated for murder in San Quentin prison. Uh, filmmaker Catherine Hervey is a former LA public defender. And I first met her in Los Angeles when she worked in the LA public defender's office. She's a volunteer prison college teacher. And she became the first documentary filmmaker to ever gain access to chronicle these sessions that they have on restorative justice inside San Quentin prison. And restorative justice is a term that I wasn't really all that familiar with. And I can promise you, uh, you'll really appreciate it after hearing this interview on our show. It's, it's an example of how all people can change and how we can evolve as a community and the power of connecting to the humanity in other people, even other people who have committed heinous, inhuman acts. It's narrated by, uh, Hill Harper. He's a good actor, um, from the good doctor. And, uh, it also features a gentleman named Troy Williams, who we speak to on this episode as well. Now, uh, Mr. Williams is someone who went to prison and while incarcerated, became a certified paralegal, and he helped develop the Victim Offender Education Group, or Vogue. And that's the curriculum for the Insight Prison Project. Uh, he was the executive director of San Quentin's Restorative Justice Interfaith Roundtable. And it's about how convicts know they can't bring back the lives they've taken. So what can they do? And how can they themselves heal? If you're old enough and wise enough to understand that hurt people hurt people, I hope you will see the film 
the prison within. And I hope you will enjoy this conversation. So I'm going to turn it over to uh, this interview. And you can see The Prison Within, by the way. It's on demand. Uh, I cannot recommend this film highly enough. It's an independent movie that doesn't have a lot of money behind it. But friends, on my SiriusXM show, I watch a ton of documentaries. This is by far the film I saw in 2020, narrative or doc, that moved me the most. Uh, this is Catherine Hervey, the director, producer, and writer of The Prison Within, and Troy Williams, who's one of the subjects and was also one of the cinematographers. Enjoy. <laughs> Catherine Hervey and Troy Williams, uh, welcome. It's great to have you both. Thank you. Absolutely. Good to be here. Thank you. This is such an important film. I have been screaming about this to everybody uh, that I see, everyone on SiriusXM. It was a pleasure having you join us there. And I'd, I'd like to just begin with the beginning. Catherine, how did you, given your background, uh, become involved with this project? What was the inspiration and what led you to meet Troy? Excellent. Thank you. So... Um, you know, a lot of this film definitely springs out of my experience as a lawyer, as a public defender in Los Angeles, as a college instructor in a men's prison, and then also working in different restorative justice contexts, both inside and outside of prison. So all that, and as well as other personal relationships that I've had with people who have been incarcerated, all really feeds it. But you know, ultimately, I wanted to make a film that broke down the barriers of us and them, of people in prison versus people who are not in prison. And really, any sort of black and white thinking at all. And trauma is that connective tissue <laughs> that we all have, that we all have, and especially people in prison. And I actually met Troy when I think we were in there the second time filming and Troy came in and, and helped us film. But I think Troy actually has a good story about that, about how we met too. Indeed, Troy. Uh, your story about how Catherine came into your world is, is fascinating um, because the amount of, the amount of uh, jobs you have on your business card are astonishing. And um, please tell us a bit about your story and how you came to be involved with this film. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, well, so I was known as pretty much as the, the resident like filmmaker inside of San Quentin State Prison. Um, and every time like a film crew came up, often um, people on the yard or people, you know, other prisoners would let me know, hey, there's a film crew up there. Um, and I would make it my duty like to go interface and interact with the film crew. I wanted to know why they were there and what their intentions um, was behind filming um, prisoners and, you know, what was the story that they wanted to tell. Um, my goal was to sort of um, see what kind of influence I can have over this typical fear-mongering story that most media agencies prior to were coming in to tell. Right. Um, and so, yeah, talk with Catherine and we sort of hit it off and, um, you know, of course, um, I was appreciate so appreciative of what I heard, how I heard her talk about what she wanted to film. You know, I wanted to help out with the film uh, behind the scenes, and a lot of the guys in the group we had, we knew each other, and um, I had a very like trusted position within the yard. Um, so you know, people let me in to hear some of their most mm. you know intimate 
stories. It's amazing how your collaboration really, really led to a lot of uh, men opening up for the cameras in ways they might not have ordinarily opened up. And I, I want to get to the specifics of the program, but uh, l- let's just start broad, if we may, because set the stage for us, Catherine. Uh, reformation of the criminal legal system is for many the next great civil rights battle and human rights battle in the United States. How broken is our country's current model of incarceration? <laughs> you know, once you get past the $75 billion a year for mass incarceration. <laughs> right, right. The fact that America incarcerates more people than any other country in the world. I mean, right? 5% of the world's population, 25% of the world's prisoners, more black men employed by corporations behind bars and outside of bars. I mean, and yet that's only scratching the surface for how broken uh, this system is. Right. Well, you know, unfortunately, I think that our system of incarceration, it doesn't start there. It's, you know, as we know, it's it's a result. Yes. It's a result of our history. It's a result of us shoving um, everything under the rug of us really not being able to look at the way that we commodify everything, the way that we've annihilated um, communities since really we first landed here on this great, great land of America. And, you know, we, so our prison system, the way that I see it, it's like this huge funnel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, And I really think of it like a cartoon. It's this huge funnel that's even bigger than a prison and everything that is wrong with our country is just funneling in there. So all the systemic oppressions, racism, poverty, class, anything and everything you can think of, it ends up inside of our prisons because we are so unwilling to look at it as a society. And of course, you know, it fails to advance public safety. I remember when prisons used to be called reformatories or, or, you know, to reform a person or penitentiaries, a place to go be penitent. Now they're cages where nonviolent offenders are often turned violent to survive. And uh, it drains public resources with no real clear social benefit and takes a lot of nonviolent people, men, uh, out of the economy where they could be working and paying into our social security system. But instead, they're locked up, often for consensual crimes, and often by judges who were powerless over things like three strikes laws. Right. And the cycle continues, and the cycle continues, and the trauma continues, and the cycle continues, not only inside the prisons, but in the communities as well. And But, you know, what I really wanted to do with this film, actually, is create a film of hope, is create a film that starts looking towards us as individuals and as smaller and larger communities that we live in to start thinking about different systems of truth and reconciliation, of different ways to do this. I I feel so often that you watch films about mass incarceration and you know, you just want to go to bed. It's so overwhelming. Well, there's no solutions ever offered. Yeah. And so I wanted to offer solutions and I really wanted to offer solutions coming from 
the men themselves and the survivors themselves and to, you know, really, I think nothing changes until we can have empathy and compassion for people that we think we can't have empathy and compassion for. Exactly. And by making uh, men and women, not statistics of incarceration, but these human beings that, you know, maybe we can even see ourselves reflected in. I think that that's where the change begins. Troy, I think that every local and state and national politician should see this film. I think every judge, every every police officer should see this film. I think there are judges and cops who would understand this film already. But it's amazing how the film, you know, can really just reduce so many of our social ills down to a simple piece of wisdom that hurt people, hurt people. How do how do how do you explain the Vogue program and and what it has meant in your life? Yeah, so um, I, you know, the, I guess the, the first thing I want to say too is also acknowledge that even though this film is uh, specifically um, talking about the men who have undergone this program, that we also have not scratched the surface about the the um, rising number of women being sentenced and being incarcerated as well. So I just wanted to make sure that that is um, forefronted as well. Of course, um, but I. I you know, I went to Vogue, um, and I usually say this. I haven't like said this in a while, but I went to the victim offenders education group because I would I had been going to the board of prison hearings trying to get released, and I didn't have a way of like really um, explaining my trauma in a way that the board could understand it. Yeah. So a part of me went in there because I was looking for language to convince the board why they should release me. And yet when I walked into this group, what I got was really so much more. I got a lot of insight into my life and a lot of understanding around um, my own mental and emotional process that led me down the path to where I could do what I did that, you know, sent me to prison with a life sentence. And uh, so I participated in it. I loved it so much. I um, became a facilitator of the program, and um, that my interaction with that program and with restorative justice has really been the cornerstone of all that I do now uh, in the community. So, I mean, it's a, that program was is a was and still is a very instrumental part of my my life and my my continued self growth. Yeah. I mean, that's in many ways why I think it's such an important movie. I mean, Catherine, it's it's a political film that goes straight to the personal and shows how they're intertwined. I mean, you begin the film with uh, a great opening narration. Experiencing trauma can change the way the world is viewed and how we operate in that world. In the aftermath of trauma, we change physically, emotionally, and mentally. Left untreated, trauma multiplies in our communities and seeps down from one generation to the next. I mean, you've made a film about how trauma is the repeated catalyst to cycles of crime and violence, and we just keep on looking away. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that fascinating, too? Because I actually feel that lawmakers even know this, and they have known this for a really long time. And you're right. and, And yet, yet here we are today talking about this yet again. 
I think that people don't know where to start sometimes, how to really start breaking this down. Well, tell me about the phrase restorative justice. Let's start breaking it down. It's a phrase that I've, I've heard used before, but you don't hear it a lot in our mainstream media or our political discourse. And I think it's really a smart uh, idea for candidates to run on. I mean, everybody out there who doesn't want to pay to educate poor dropouts is going to pay to incarcerate poor dropouts. So how do you define restorative justice and, and what does it mean to you? So I define restorative justice as being the opposite of punitive justice, which is what we have right now. And in the punitive system, basically, there is someone who has been harmed and someone who has done a harm. And they are separated forever. And the person who has done the harm is penalized as much as possible. And the survivor of the harm gets no healing or closure or anything. And then, of course, the person who is being punished by punitive means is even more traumatized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and saying goes back out and continues that, right? And restorative justice is basically this idea of, you know, before, and th- this needs to happen before the punitive system, you know, b- before before the film <laughs> happened, restorative justice should have happened. Yeah. And it's bringing people together who have basically experienced harm together and a survivor trying to ask questions and understand what happened and the person who committed the harm telling where they were coming from and trying to find the context basically for what happened. So it's about finding context. It's about finding healing. It's about finding solutions And I think this is really important is that it's not the state deciding this is what is best for each party. It's the people involved in the conflict deciding, and it's even the community involved in the conflict deciding what is best for the members of the community. I mean, that's a beautiful way of putting it. I mean, you note that most of the people in in prison are first a victim. And it's so important to understand this. All the world's great religions call on us to understand this. And in a way, when we first meet the men of Vogue, we're told that they are all murderers, all convicted murderers. Um, I'd like to ask you, Troy, can you share with us a bit about about what is it that has made the Victim Offender Education Group at San Quentin so effective? Well, one thing is that like the group itself does not like there's a difference between defining someone as a murder and saying what they did was murder. Yes. Right. And so there's a there's a big distinction between the identity of the the the, the person or the human being and the actions that they committed. Um, I think what has made um, Vogue and other programs uh, around this so powerful uh, is that these programs in which most people don't really know this, but they were actually initiated, started, and developed um, by incarcerated individuals, right? And these individuals called on outside community who who answered to the call and brought in a level of expertise, and and together um, they began to shape these programs in a way that was best for the population they were intended to serve. 
you know, what happens a lot in community is someone will attempt to develop a program and they assume that just because they have the degree, right. that they can develop a program and therefore they understand the population that they're intended to work with. And that's one thing that I have continued to do is challenge when I come home that you have, you may have a theoretical model, um, but if, if that theoretical model is not blended with lived and practical experience, then you don't have all the pieces you need to effect real change uh, in our community. I uh, mean, and, uh, absolutely. As Sonia Shah says in the film, people who are sentenced are told you are your action. And there's, uh, you know, this culture where we have uh, 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 thousands of us who have been judged based on the worst thing they ever did. And it's often rather random how the wheels of justice have decided who gets that punishment. I'm curious, Troy, what is a what is a survivor's panel? So, yes, a survivor's panel is. Um, so people who come in um, to share their stories who have been victimized by crime, um, they often and we often prefer to call them survivors um, inside a prison. The term victim can be looked down upon heavily. Um, nobody wants to be a victim inside a prison. And so we, you identify, more readily identify with the survivor. And because there's also strength in these individuals who come in to share their story, like there's a strength of resilience that they have endured um, some of the worst things um, that they have gone through in their life. And they've endured that. So we call them survivors panels. And what happens is um, we normally find a person who has been um, convicted of a crime that is similar to what the survivor has undergone as being the victim of a crime. Yeah. And um, they come in and they share their stories and something very magical happens where they begin to um, sort of identify with each other's plight in a way that I, I think if it was someone else, it wouldn't, it would not happen, but they begin to identify and understand. And I think answers and empathy is like um, cultivated uh, through that, yeah. uh, through that interaction. I mean, in a way that men aren't encouraged to reflect on themselves in any level of society. I mean, I, I actually think that the Vogue program needs to be used for men outside of jail. I mean, Catherine, at one point in the film, someone talks about, you know, the anger and the violence that stems from untreated trauma and that our our justice system excludes the whole idea of rehabilitation. So it just adds more violence because it won't address trauma. And someone says, these aren't excuses. These are explanations I can only imagine how amazing it must have been for you to go in and shoot with a small crew in San Quentin. Did you have any idea what you were in for? And and, and what what really moved you about the Victim Offender Education Group? So I, I, di I did know what I was going to get to a certain extent because um, my partner Massimo and I, before we went in and filmed, it was just the two of us going into film we actually took the facilitator training for Vogue. Mm. And so we ourselves had to do many of the same exercises that you see the men doing in the film, talking about abusive power at a time when we had been abused or a time when we had harmed others. And so we kind of had, we had to do that deep work too before going in, which I thought was really 
just like a really wonderful perspective to have before going in. And then another part of that training was also that we did go in and see the men in circle, similar to how we filmed, but in a larger circle, also sharing their exercises. And, you know, I just saw so much depth and vulnerability and uh, sincerity and accountability. And I had worked with Sonia before coming in. So I knew already a lot about Barry and a lot about Sam and a lot about Michael and, you know, really the, the, the main people in the film that come forward and speak. So I knew, um, I knew that I was, I knew that I was going to get gold. I, I knew that it would be sincere. I knew that nobody would be faking it. I knew it would be raw and I knew it would be really real. Yeah. Uh, one thing that really moves me is, um, I mean, the fluidity of your filmmaking. You guys just, you're great storytellers. And you tell multiple narratives of very different people in the course of this film. You always keep it entertaining while while still keeping the issues at the forefront. And one of my unexpected favorite stories is that of Dion Wilson, who's sort of uh, this unlikely figure of hope in the beginning when we meet her. She's a a right-wing gun store employee whose police officer husband was shot and killed. She's just, it's devastating. She's left behind with two children and she's demanding the death penalty against the offender, uh, Irving Ramirez. And we follow a journey that shows a, a transformation in an American soul from retribution to finding empathy for her late husband's killer uh, up until the point where she's now, trying to abolish the death penalty. Please tell me a bit about how you you found her and how that story came together. It's such a, an amazing part of the film. And at first I didn't know why she was included. And then it's just, it's such a devastating theme for all you're saying. Yeah. So from the beginning, the, the beginning before I even found the Vogue program, before I met anybody, I had the concept of the prison within and that was, that's the underbelly of all of it. So I knew that it, I needed to have both survivors on the outside and survivors, of course, because the men are survivors on the inside. And I wanted to tell their stories in to really show hurt people hurt people and right. people are survivors before they hurt other people. And so by showing Jamie's story and by showing Dion's story in there, you see those same threads of pain and harm. And yeah, that, that, that was right from the very beginning in terms of how I wanted to, to form the narrative of the film and tell the stories. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's such a, it's such a beautiful character. I'm wondering what surprised you? the most in the making of the film. I so appreciate the prep you did going in. You knew the story you wanted to tell. And I'm wondering what along the way uh, did you find challenging? What along the way surprised you about the men you were profiling? Hmm. Well, you know, what's really coming up is, you know, this film took about six years to make, as, as independent films tend to do, because you're kind of always trying to find funding to finish the film. Yeah. So what really surprised me was public perception, that 
when I first started making this film and I would tell people about the film that I was making, these men inside San Quentin who had taken people's lives, even, you know, the most quotes, quote unquote, progressive person, I was just the blankest stairs. People had no idea what I was talking about. And the idea of having any sort of compassion or understanding for them it absolutely was not there. You know, Mm -hmm. they they really thought I'm this very progressive person, but when it comes to that and you've hurt another person, you deserve no sympathy. And through the years, as I kept making the film and, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter started, um, people started looking at trauma differently, at the way that child's brains develop, how we age out of crime. I started noticing more of a softening from people in terms of just, you know, how they viewed basically people who committed crimes. Right. And I guess that was the most surprising thing to me is how, how shut down people really were toward the humanity. And really, you know, as we know, you know, millions and millions of people behind the walls. In spite of all that, you know, Christianity teaches, in spite of all liberals claim to believe, I find the same thing. And we have, you know, these easy, readily made disposable villains. And your film is all about, in a way, the phenomena you encountered. The fact that, you know, dehumanizing the people we throw away in cages makes it easier for us to live with it, even though it's hurting the entire culture. I mean, Troy, your story is so incredible. Uh, you are an angel in this film. You served 25 years in juvenile and adult prison facilities. What do you you feel is the most important for people who are outside the system to understand about how America incarcerates people? You know, I I, I think I'm, so I'm pausing around this question because like, there's so much information out there like nowadays about, you know, the disparities that happen and have happened like in this country. Um, and I, I guess I just want to point people back to some like empathy, like, yeah, like we know the disparities, like this is not this story versus that story. Like the data is clear that there have been disparities. And, you know, my question is, what are we going to do about it? Right. Like, so on one level, we're trying to, you know, educate people and hopefully create some empathy, you know, through this movie and some, you know, not even just but some connection. Um, But at the end of the day, like, what are we going to do so that my grandkids, you know, don't have to continue to do this? And I think um, a lot of young people around the country are like... (laughs) These young people are stepping up to the plate. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I gotta, you know, like it. It makes like I'm. I'm happy just to think about how young people of all colors are stepping up to the plate, and they're challenging. You know, some of this. You know, they're challenging a lot of this. You know, the old way of discriminating, and I'm just happy to see that. 
I mean, Catherine, there's so much in this film that that I learned, and I'm someone who who, who cares about these issues, and uh, you know, but like I had never heard of something like a surrogate victim program, where you know an offender is paired with a person who was hurt by a similar crime, be it robbery or murder or sexual assault, and the offender and the victim share their experiences, and it's it's just emotionally. I mean, you do show that there is another prison we don't talk about. Uh, I, I had no idea about what a victim's panel was. I, I'm wondering what would be the best for you, the best dialogue to be inspired by this film? Because I, I think it's something everyone needs to see, especially those running for elective office. But what kind of dialogue do you hope this film inspires? Well, I mean, you know, there's two things is that it's it's the prison within, you know, the the concept of the prison within and the title of the prison within is extremely intentional. Right. It's that we are no different, you know, it, but for a specific set of circumstances and trauma, you and I could be inside prison right now with a 60 to life sentence. And yeah. I think we all need to realize that we're we're capable of doing every one of us is capable of doing the most, you know, beautiful courageous acts and also the most horrendous and violent given the right circumstances. And until we really start thinking that and understanding that and believing that, um I think we're going to keep perpetuating these lines of yeah. This person, this this person can do that, but I'm not capable of that. So one, I think it needs to be like from a very personal, deep reflection with oneself about what we are and are not capable of. And second, I think it's just it's to understand that these systems, yes, they are super entrenched and they are connected to any systemic oppression that you can point to in our society. That's where it's all coming from. But that we can change it. We, you know, there also are systems in place coming into place. I don't even know if I want to call them systems Yeah, where we can start breaking this down. I mean, the old systems are dying. I mean, you know, they're, they're hanging on. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> like the nail right now, but eventually they're dying. And like, like Troy was saying, you know, we're here to create something new. Young people are here to create something new, but it takes a lot of introspection. Yeah. I, I want to commend you both. I think that this is one of the best films I've ever seen about men and the terrible ways that violence can shape men, but also the terrible ways that not talking about trauma can cause men to become the kind of men they are not meant to be. And it's something that speaks to everyone um, and also for everyone of every politics. I mean, it's literally a film about how we just don't hear each other. And, you know, we talked before about the similarities in, in your film to some of the issues now with, you know, uh, reallocating funds for policing in prisons, for example. But I, I was thinking about the movie, watching the campaigning. And it seems like, you know, wherever you stand on issues, rule number one is you must define your opponent based on the worst thing he or she has ever done as well. It seems like we do this in prisons and in politics. We just have to go to the worst in another person. I, I'm wondering, Troy and Catherine, if you see anything in, in, today's politics or the issues that divide us now that, that speak even more to the issues of this film? 
since you've wrapped? Yeah, um, I think it's, we were having a, you know, conversation, I guess, a little bit earlier before we started recording. Yeah. And it's like, well, the prison within is taking a look at how unprocessed trauma can cause you to harm other people. Mm. And if you look at what we see in politics, I, I really don't see the difference between politics and gangs. Like, like we are causing a lot of harm and pain that years from now we're going to look back and I don't think we're going to be proud of ourselves um, in this country. I don't think, I don't think that the, you know, history will write too well about this moment in time when everything seems to be, there's this line drawn in the sand across politics and, 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 and not people. Yeah. You know, um, like this is, this is, this harm, we're continuing to perpetuate this harm based upon our own emotional and political prisons that we've allowed ourselves to dwell in. Um, and something's got to change, like something like for the longevity or the continued existence of this country, like something has to change um, because it doesn't look too good right now. And even around the world, it does not. Around the too. whole world. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, Catherine, I just I think this is serious age of Aquarius filmmaking here because we, we have to be on the verge of an incredible I mean, an incredible evolutionary leap in in how we treat each other, and 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 I think that's what this film speaks to. Have you seen the themes playing out since you finished making the film? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, this film is about taking accountability. <laughs> you know, and what what we see in this film is people who society has deemed to be. Uh, necessarily locked up or the worst of the worst or whatever languaging society puts on them actually being the, you know, some of the most uh, accountable people I have ever encountered in my entire life. And what we see instead on the outside and in the news and with our politicians and everything that's happening, it's pick a side, it's, you know, division, 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 black and white thinking, there is no nuance, there's no unpacking of any situation, right? As Sujatha says in, in, in the film, right. that situations need to be unpacked. And, you know, I, I feel like people need to watch the film and see what real accountability looks like because that's what we need to do right now. Politicians need to be accountable. I would love to start people saying what I said yesterday was wrong. I didn't understand the complexity of the situation. Yeah. Now it's been filled in. We don't see that. We don't see that. Well, I, I, I want to believe that's been Joe Biden's entire pitch to liberals for the last year. Uh, and I hope that's the case. But I do hope that we're coming on an age where we just realize that this kind of uh, law enforcement, this kind of incarceration is not only not helpful to the society, but destructive to, to every level of society. I, I, I want to just ask you both before we go, what's the best way for people to see the film? How, how, what's for people who want to see the prison within, um, how do you recommend they go uh, on demand or what do you believe is the best way to see your film? 
Yeah, wh- whatever they have. Right now it's on Amazon and iTunes. It's on YouTube, Google Play, Microsoft, pretty much all of the streaming channels. If you want to do it on demand, it's on Com- Comcast, Frontier, AT&T. It's pretty broad around North America, U.S. and Canada. But yeah, go, go to Amazon. Go to Amazon, please. Watch the film. I want to thank you both uh, for joining me for a couple of interviews and for all the work you did into making this movie. It's so important. Catherine, this is one of those films that I say, I wish my father was alive to see this movie. Like that's, that's how moving it was. Thank you. I, I want to just ask you before we go, if you can both tell us what is it that you are optimistic about uh, in 2020 as we face an election day uh, and its aftermath? And Catherine, what is, what is giving you hope? <laughs> Well, what I see is that the systems are crumbling, really, is is what I see. And these are, uh, you know, they're not going to crumble in our lifetimes, in in my lifetime, I don't think. But I, uh, I think they're crumbling. And I think we're seeing the final vestiges of uh, the old white man holding on to his power. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's falling. Troy, what are what are you filled with hope over? So I'm filled with hope when I see um, our young people continue like the legacy of our ancestors and like fighting the powers that be, right? Like like raising, you know, like raising, attempting to raise awareness and consciousness, um, like around this country. Um, I'm also optimistic when I see. Um, how other um, races and I just namely how other young white people are standing up and saying, this is not right. Yeah. This is not fair. Like they're going against the grain of the racism taught by their parents. And that is a huge thing to do. That is a very huge thing to do. And so I admire that. I just admire um, how this young generation has come together in a way that I don't, I don't think most um, uh, people from, um, you know, probably my generation or older um, could foresee or see. Um, And it's just, it's a beautiful thing. And I just want to tell them, keep it up uh, and thank you. I want to thank you both. I want to remind everybody, the film is The Prison Within. It is not just the most important film I've seen this year. It's my favorite film I have seen in 2020. Troy Williams and Catherine Hervey, thank you both so very much for being so generous of your time and experience. And thanks for an amazing film. Thank you. Thank you so much, John. Absolutely. Thank you. We all know that the Clean Phone Pro with its powerful UV lights kills bacteria and viruses that live on your cell phone, car and house keys, credit cards, earbuds, face masks, and more. But what happens when you're driving to the store, you reach for your face mask, and realize you wore it yesterday? (gasps) Now you can sanitize that mask in under five minutes in your car because the Clean Phone Pro now ships with a powerful car plug adapter included in the package. So whether you're keeping safe at home or have to go out, you can have the benefits of the Clean Phone Pro with you and sanitize those constantly touched items anywhere, at home, in the car, or at the office. Get the Clean Phone Pro now with a car plug adapter. Add the code SEXYLIBERAL, all one word, at checkout, and you'll get free two-day shipping. Only you can defend yourself and your family from bacteria and virus. Get the new Clean Phone Pro package. Get KN95 masks and get free two-day shipping by adding the code SEXYLIBERAL. Go to the newdealshop.com. 
so my thanks once again to uh, Troy Williams and the amazing Catherine Hervey. Do yourself a favor and see the prison within. And if you got that uncle racist or, you know, someone on in your life that doesn't get it, this, I promise, is a film that can help them get it. It's an important movie. I want every Democrat and Republican in Congress to see it if there's still a Congress by the time we're done recording. So uh, I hope you guys had a great Christmas and New Year's. I'm going to be bringing you live shows every night on SiriusXM Progress. But also, in addition to the Stephanie Miller shows we're doing online, I did a really, really fun New Year's Eve special. That's the ultimate 2020 in review show, and it's still available. It was called New Year's Mock and Eve, but what we did was three specials in one. Part of it was um, some great, great headliners doing sets. Greg Proops of Whose Line Is It Anyway, Judy Gold, who is my comedy shaman, uh, the brilliant Alonzo Bowden. Then we also took over a comedy club in New York City. Me and a few of my riffraff comic friends took over the club, Stand Up New York, which is a great Upper West Side room. Robin Williams played there. Jerry Seinfeld has dropped in for sets. It's a legendary space. And uh, we did a socially distanced comedy show with only about nine people in the audience. Amy Stiller was there. And we did a, a, a set. We wore masks and told the time we could get to the microphone. We had uh, the club owner coming on and Lysoling down the microphone and pole between acts. It was really wacky. It was really weird. It was exuberant. It was the first time the club had had a comedy show in nine months. And it's deeply inappropriate and vulgar too. And then finally, uh, it's also a special where we talk to some of our favorite celebrity friends about 2020 and their hopes for this year. Kathy Griffin, uh, Gilbert Gottfried, Marilu Henner, David Crosby, and Jane Lynch. It's called New Year's Mock and Eve. It's really, really fun. Like, like my wife actually watched it and laughed the whole time and that doesn't happen. And you can see it if you go to meathook.live slash comedy. That's meathook, M-E-E-T-H-O-O-K. Don't do M-E-A-T-H-O-O. That, that, meat, that meat hook is where, you know, Lindsey Graham might be there. I'm just saying. Go, go with meat hook, M-E-E-T-H-O-O-K dot live slash comedy. And check it out. I'm really proud of this special. And I hope you will have a download. We're going to hopefully be doing more of these this year because comedians got to work. And I thank you for joining us in the beginning of a new chapter of this podcast. I'm John Fugel saying it's a pleasure. My thanks to Jennifer Hagerty for producing and Chris Lavoie for producing and everyone at the Stephanie Miller Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Go visit me at, uh, at John Fugel saying on the socials or johnfugelsang.com. Listen to SiriusXM. And please, please write us, write us letters. We, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, my Facebook is open or my website. Uh, we read them out loud on the air as well. We'll see you soon. Peace.